Hello everyone and welcome to For Fat's Sake, the Ferret's podcast about misinformation and fact checking. And joining me, sailing the seven seas of misinformation, the Admiral of Audio, Paul Dobson. How are you doing, Paul? That was cracking. Great intro there. Really well Thank done. You. Um, I think that's kind of an apt nickname for this week as well with the coronation coming up. You can see the bunting up in the background of your of your screen there. So Yeah, we are obviously very excited about the coronation. Another thing we're very excited about, congratulations to the SMP today who have found themselves some auditors. That's good news for them. It's a big moment for a budding political party. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, Paul, on this week's podcast, we've got an excellent interview and a series of interesting fact checks. Do you want to talk us through who we are interviewing today? We're speaking to Kirsty Pavey from the charity Beat Eating Disorders, uh, specifically mm. about misinformation about eating disorders online on places like TikTok uh, and other social media channels. If you're ever on social media, uh, on yeah, TikTok or Instagram, you might have seen these health influencers, diet advice, that sort of things. We're talking to Kirsty about how dangerous that can be and how bad it is when non-fact-checked information about diet gets into uh, people's social media feeds. We're also uh, going to be looking at a claim by Suella Braverman about people fleeing the crisis in Sudan. And Paul, there's a Paul's Curiosity Corner that you have picked, haven't you? Very good. Yes, we're going back in time, very far back in time, perhaps our oldest ever fact check mm. to look at some interesting findings about the origins of some of Scotland's earliest people, namely the Picts. Excellent. So covering all bases today. Um, but let's start with our interview with Kirsty Pavey. I'm Kirsty Pavey. Um, I'm the national lead for Scotland at BEAT. Um, BEAT is the UK's um, largest eating disorder charity, um, providing support to either people who are living with eating disorders or their loved ones who are looking after them. We're here to talk about bad diet advice that occurs online and the sort of misinformation surrounding it. First of all, could you tell us how prevalent is bad diet advice online? Yeah, sure. So. I mean, we're speaking to people every day um, on our helpline, either people living with eating disorders or supporting those um, who have eating disorders. And we know from them that inaccurate information about health um, and harmful posts about dieting are really, really common online. Seeing information which isn't fact-checked can actually have really big health implications for people with eating disorders. And, and whilst misinformation doesn't necessarily cause an eating disorder, it can for sure worsen eating disorder behaviours such as um, restricting food intake or um, laxative use or binge eating. Harmful information can also contribute to the development of eating disorders if somebody is vulnerable to one. So as the experts in eating disorders, we do find it very concerning that health misinformation is so readily available online. Who is this sort of stuff being shared by and where is it being shared mostly? It is pretty easy now to access health misinformation on social media. As I said, anybody is able to post videos about diets and fitness. So it isn't just health professionals that we're seeing that information from. Yeah. Um, I think one 
really concerning element of TikTok is that the more that somebody engages with specific types of content, then the more that yeah. the algorithm is going to recommend similar videos, um, which means that people who either have an eating disorder or who are vulnerable to one are continuously watching harmful content. Yeah, that's something that we've come across a lot uh, on this podcast with various misinformation topics is that idea of getting into an, a sort of an echo chamber. There have been like notable cases of quite like quite famous influencers promoting things like diet teas and lollipops and uh, weight loss drugs and things like that. What sort of harm does that cause? I think when people see celebrities showing a type of lifestyle, it, it's quite enticing. Um, I think what we're not seeing is all the stuff behind the scenes, um, you know, all the nutritionists and personal trainers and whatever that are actually helping these people get into that sort of shape and exactly. things that we don't have access to. Um, so I think what we're seeing is not a reality, but I think sometimes it's quite hard to remember that we're seeing kind of a filtered view of someone. Yeah, and I'm kind of interested in that advertising angle and like, so obviously there's a reason that the algorithm work that, works that way and it's to sort of get as many views as possible on certain uh, on certain videos. So is there sort of a money-making aspect to this, do you think, that's driving it from the influencers who are promoting this kind of, or like weight loss drugs or other sorts of things like that? Yeah, I believe so. What I can tell you is about um, what our service users have told us. So... Um, a couple of years ago now, we surveyed about 200 people who had either recovered from their eating disorder or supported a loved one through an eating disorder um, about online advertising. Mm -hmm. And 96% of participants reported that they'd encountered adverts on social media, which they believed could be harmful in the context of their eating disorder, which is an enormous amount. Um, and then over 80% of them reported encountering those adverts at least once every day. Wow. Um, so they sort of, they reported um, that they felt bombarded by these kind of relentless harmful content. And some did actually say that it harmed their recovery process. So we're sort of talking about TikTok specifically, and yeah. they say that content glorifying disordered eating is not allowed on TikTok and will be removed. So are they doing enough in that case? Because it sounds like from what you're saying there that they're, they're not. Yeah, so um, at Beat, we have actually worked alongside TikTok um, and other platforms such as Instagram um, to sort of signpost users to our support services. Yeah. Um, and we have found that the majority of the platforms are taking steps to protect people. But we do think that more does need to be done. Um, TikTok especially has been receptive to hearing from people um, who have lived experience of eating disorders um, to make their platform safer, safer. So that is a, you know, that is a great step in the right direction. Mm -hmm. um, we know that banning hashtags has also had some effect, but um, we also know that it's pretty easy to get around that just by misspelling. So um, TikTok has said it's going to adjust its... Um, recommendation algorithm to protect its users um, and they also made the decision to stop advertising weight loss products to under 18s so i mean whilst we obviously welcome these steps we do urge them to take further action against harmful content um, and 
you know, it's important to remember that adults are harmed by eating disorder content online as well. It's not just young people. And, you know, until now, their steps have been squarely aimed at young people. Could you expand a little bit further on uh, the banning of hashtags and how that like leads people towards um, a a pro-eating disorder content or bad diet information? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, we know that content that promotes eating disorders is pretty common on platforms like TikTok. Um, So you might have heard it called like pro-ana, so Mm -hmm. pro-anorexia. And those are videos that give um, eating disorder tips um, about weight loss, how to achieve weight loss and show lots of body checking. So um, body checking is about... um, like frequently weighing yourself on the scales or sort of um, an obsessive fixation on body parts and checking them in the mirror. Um, So obviously that kind of content is dangerous because it can contribute to eating disorders getting worse or Mm -hmm. um, contribute to the development um, of an eating disorder for people who are already vulnerable to these mental illnesses. So yeah, we are aware that the hashtags especially um, can direct people to that so um, as I said TikTok have taken steps to ban those sort of really obvious ones but hmm. they obviously do need to do more um, to ensure that people aren't able to kind of circumvent that yeah I think what's interesting is that uh, discussion of food seems to be a large part of TikTok it's something that a lot of people go to TikTok for um, yeah. So I suppose, like, could you explain how some of the food trends on TikTok might be more harmful to somebody who's prone to an eating disorder than we might realize? So I'm thinking specifically about things like what I eat in a day, uh, water talk, things like that. Yeah, sure. Um, So I'll just explain what some of those are in case um, listeners aren't aware. So um water talk videos often feature people who are filling up like large cups with ice and water and then adding different flavorings to the water i mean typically in pursuit of drinking more water in a day um it's originated in america i don't think they have like cordial or squash there so it kind of is maybe a bit unusual to brits um who've been doing that for a long time but um the the trend actually originated amongst patients of um, weight loss surgery who had been advised to consume water before and after their operations so kind of going on a a liquid diet but as the trends developed we have seen some users describing how they're actually replacing meals with water or using it to suppress their appetite right so I mean obviously drinking water isn't a problem it's to be encouraged but uh, replacing meals with water can be very harmful for those with eating disorders um it's a sort of classic eating disorder behavior um and that restriction of food intake can then contribute to other harmful thoughts and behaviors such as um binge eating or feelings of guilt and shame so um it also does you know contribute to eating disorder thoughts or behaviors for those who might be vulnerable to developing eating disorders so yeah i mean liquid dieting is very dangerous and can can have yeah. severe mental and f- physical health consequences if sort of done over a long period of time and then paul you also mentioned the the what i eat in a day so yeah um from sort of you know 
our expertise in eating disorders, we know that they are um, very competitive illnesses. So that sort of content, that what I eat in a day video can be very attractive to people who are currently unwell. Um, So the videos themselves tend to go into detail about um, foods and calories and exercise and that body checking that I mentioned earlier. Um, So these can kind of serve as inspiration for somebody uh, to continue engaging in their eating disorder behaviours and to potentially copy or try to sort of better that person's diet plan for the day. So that is especially harmful if they're not eating enough or if they're over-exercising. One of the things that I uh, found when I was doing research for this podcast was that um, in other areas, so for health informa- or misinformation on other topics, there seemed to be a growing movement of sort of doctors and other sort of in the know people trying to counter disinformation about this stuff online is that the case in the eating disorder sphere as well there are definitely um health professionals who have um training and expertise in eating disorders who have a platform now i sometimes just think that their voices are maybe drowned out a bit by the sort of (laughs) the noise of those people um i think sometimes it's quite hard to make health messages sexy in a way I think it's kind of not necessarily what people actually want to to hear so um there's definitely more for health professionals to be doing to try to sort of counter those other voices but there's the whole thing about uh um semaglutides uh drug that people have been talking about um is that has that opened up another kind of front of misinformation and kind of danger to people we know that that weight loss injection, the semaglutide, is especially um, dangerous for people living with eating disorders. Um, it doesn't address the actual eating disorder um, thoughts itself um, and is kind of just a quick fix. So we are calling for anyone um, who is looking for a prescription for that weight loss injection to um, be screened for an eating disorder you can't you can't tell if someone has an eating disorder just from looking at them so there does need mm-hmm. to be a full screening um, done before prescribing that but you know we also are seeing um, content that's showing people how to access that without a prescription which obviously is is hugely concerning to us at Beat. Okay, and just to sort of finish up, what can people do or who can they speak to if they th- may think that they are developing issues with eating? First of all, we would um, suggest that if you are worried either about yourself or someone you know, that you should contact your GP as soon as possible. Um, obviously know that that can be quite a scary thing. And if people are unsure of what to say, then we do have a leaflet um, available on the BEAT website, which can help um, we also have a, a Scottish helpline at BEAT, which is open um, 365 days a year uh, until midnight every day, including weekends and bank holidays. Um, and that number is uh, 0808 And we would just like anybody affected by eating disorders to know that there is nothing to be ashamed of and that support is out there for anybody who needs it.
So Ali, as our fact-checking lead this week, you've been looking into a claim by the UK's Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, about refugees from Sudan, uh, with the crisis going on over there, coming over to the UK. So what did Suella Braverman actually say that you checked? So last week she was on Sky News um, being interviewed by Kay Burley, um, who asked her, across the various questions, what she would do with people who came to the UK from Sudan uh, in a small boat crossing. Uh, initially, she said there was no reason for anyone to come to the UK in a small boat, but then she was pushed uh, further, and her answer was as follows. Quote, if you're someone who's fleeing Sudan for humanitarian reasons, there are various mechanisms you, you can use. The UNHCR is present in the region and they are the right mechanism by which people should apply if they do want to seek asylum in the UK. Right, so um, obviously an ongoing situation in Sudan. Mm. Are there refugees fleeing there at the moment? Yes, so obviously, yeah, as you say, it's a developing situation and um, we're fairly new into this current escalation of the conflict, but uh, the UN has estimated that 100,000 have fled into neighbouring countries and they're planning for an estimated 800,000 refugees or attorneys that might flee Sudan into nearby countries. Um, the implication therein is that whether or not refugees who are fleeing that conflict or maybe have family ties in the UK, etc., might end up um, coming to the UK and then seeking asylum. Okay, so something we've talked about quite a lot on this podcast in terms of refugees, and Braverman linked the question that Burley asked to the upcoming illegal migration bill. Mm. Uh, and we know there's often some confusion about what constitutes illegal immigration to the UK. So could you explain that for us? Yeah, so Braverman told uh, Burley in the interview that the UK government's new law was intended to deal with people who come here illegally um, as part of the question when she was asked about whether or not people what to do with people who came from Sudan in small boats. Um, I think it's important to know what we've noted before in this podcast, that there's no single definition of illegal immigration. That's a term that gets used a lot in the media and by politicians nowadays, but it's not really extremely clearly defined. Um, The Oxford University Migration Observatory, which does a lot of um, statistical and policy work around uh, migration into the UK, they define uh, ways in which people come to the UK in irregular and regular ways. So entering through regular routes um, would be if you had, uh, you had, you know, you had been given a um, refugee status, then you came to the UK, which is very, very uncommon and accounts for Mm -hmm. a tiny proportion of the amount of people who are refugees actually come to the UK. And there's a number of different ways in which you can become an irregular migrant. So you might enter through regular routes, but then, you know, by air or whatever, but then breach your, um, conditions for entry uh, you might enter outside of regular routes or by staying or by overstaying your asylum application when it's failed things like that so there's various different ways you, which you can become an irregular migrant technically if you if you think about boat crossings to the uk they are considered to be irregular routes in terms mm-hmm. of they're not routes which are agreed uh, entry points to the uk by the uk but when irregular routes are used by people seeking asylum such as those fleeing the war in, in sudan they're not considered to be illegal so you can't really be an illegal asylum seeker. Yeah. Because according to the UN Refugee Convention, which the UK is a signatory of, people seeking asylum can't be penalized for using illegal routes to enter the UK. And because of the nature of the way that the immigration system works in the UK, it's one of the only ways you can actually get into the UK. So if you can't come to the UK, then you seek asylum. That's the most common way in which people who successfully seek asylum in the UK actually come through into the country. 
Okay. So is Braverman's claim correct then? Can people in Sudan apply to that convention, the UNHCR, if they do want to seek asylum in the United Kingdom? No. So the UNHCR is the UN's uh, like refugee agency, and they work in countries where there are refugee crises. Um, but no, you can't apply as a person to be taken in by the UNHCR and then become uh, taken into the UK through the UK's resettlement schemes. After Braverman made the claim, the UNHCR put out a pretty strong statement um, saying, quote, UNHCR wishes to clarify there is no mechanism through which refugees can approach UNHCR with the intention of seeking asylum in the UK. They said that resettlement is, quote, only available for a limited number of refugees who have left their own countries and been identified as particularly at risk in the countries where they initially sought refuge. There's no, like, queue system or application system for resettlement in the UK. Refugees are identified through, quote, ongoing protection programs in countries of asylum. So, essentially, what Braverman said there is 100% incorrect. So on this week's edition of Paul's Curiosity Corner, we are going full-time team. You can be Tony Robinson and doing a bit of historical fact-checking. Specifically, we're looking at some of the early inhabitants of Scotland, who I'm sure you've heard of, namely the Picts. So first of all, Ali, can you tell our 21st century audience who the Picts were and what we know about them? Yeah, so going back to our uh, high school history here, Picts lived in northeast Scotland during the early medieval period uh, from around 300 to 900 AD, um, so more than a thousand years ago. There's some evidence of Pictish culture that exists, usually in the form of carvings, such as you've seen like, like large stones with these like distinct yeah. spiral sim- uh, symbols, but they left no written records. This has allowed myths and legends about them to, to flourish. Um, we know that a lot of the writing about the Picts was done by the Romans, um, who they were in kind of constant conflict with uh, through the entire time the Romans occupied Britain. They saw the Picts as fearsome warriors, um, and Hadrian's Wall was actually built to protect the empire in the south from attacks from the Picts. Okay, so recently an important myth about the Picts has been debunked. So what was that myth? Yeah, so the mystery around the Picts extends to its origins. Um, One of the long-standing myths about them uh, is that they were, in fact, immigrants to Scotland from, quote, exotic origins, uh, such as the Aegean Sea or Scythia in Eastern Europe. This characterization has endured since medieval times, but now scientists and researchers uh, have debunked it. And how did they do that? So the researchers uh, from the University of Aberdeen and Liverpool John Moores University uh, did an extensive analysis of Pictish genomes. Genomes are the set of genetic information in an organism. Uh, It's stored in long molecules of DNA called chromosomes, and scientists can sequence genomes and compare them to others to see shared characteristics. So these are bioarchaeologists. They compared Pictish genomes from Pictish era cemeteries uh, in Scotland uh, to previously published ancient genomes as well as Scottish um, modern Scottish population. Uh, That means they could see how genetically similar the Picts were to different peoples from Britain, Ireland, Scandinavia, and mainland Europe in the similar time periods. Uh, they found that the Picts actually shared long chunks of their DNA with people in regions of the British Isles, which means they have less European origins. The interesting thing about this from a fact-checking perspective is sort of the long lineage of the false claim. Um, yeah. 
as you said, the claims about the Picts' exotic origins were made mostly by medieval sources, I think by one particular um, medieval source. Um, so are there any other examples of modern science essentially fact-checking claims made in earlier ages? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, obviously, it's not the first time that modern scientists have tried to shed light on some long-held myths. Um, one off, one example that often kind of crops up uh, is uh, religious discoveries or discoveries with alleged uh, religious imports that have been questioned and debunked by scientists. Uh, one good example of this might be the Shroud of Turin. Um, obviously, many uh, religious groups have claimed this was used as Jesus' burial shroud and is uh, it's been called a holy relic and is you know important part of uh, various religions. Um, in 1988, an attempt was made to carbon date the cloth, which found that its material dated from around 1260 to 1390, which would obviously be way too recent for it to be associated with Jesus. When you start um, fact-checking and debunking long-held religious artifacts, that's inevitably controversial. And there are still a lot of people who have um, questioned it. There's been a lot of sort of attempted debunks made of the debunk. Yeah, that's a kind of good example of how you might come into controversy as a scientist in the modern era uh, debunking a very widely held and sort of strongly believed myth from the past. That's all we've got time for for this episode. Thanks to Kirsty Pavey for sharing her insights with us. Paul, if people have got any fact checks they want to us to discuss uh, or any other issues you want to get in contact with us, maybe they want to pitch us a claim about the ancient Egyptians or something, what can they do? You can go to our new uh, sort of new community forum, community.theferret.scott, or you can get in contact with us on social media, so at Ferret Scott on Twitter, or also on Facebook, Instagram, all of those lovely places. And they can also get in contact with you directly, can't they, Ali? So how do they do that? Yeah, fact check at theferret.scott if you want to personalize your comments of positive nature. Um, and we will be with you in two weeks. So we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.